This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Welcome to Bite Into It with your hosts tonight, Colin, Dan and Vanessa. Hi, guys. Howdy. Hello. Uh, This evening, we are going to be hearing from the new developers of a gig guide for Melbourne. So if you're into catching local bands and such around town, then you'll want to stay tuned for that. But before we get to that, we're very conscious that we're in the middle of a very short election run at the moment. Now, Colin, you're our local election expert, and I wonder if you might uh, address some news of the week for us. Well, yes. First of all, I have to say up front, um, slight conflict. Uh, I used to work for the Greens, and in fact, my wife is the uh, Greens candidate in this local electorate, so just uh, bear that in mind. So with the the election, the the biggest thing in tech is definitely going to be the NBN. Um, People are still uh, talking about that, that all over the place, and the major parties are gearing up to make their announcements on that. And Bill Shorten's given a bit of a hint of where Labor are going to come down. So it looks like what we can expect, I think, is the government to maintain the status quo. They will stick with their multi-technology mix and the fibre-to-the-node model that they've been spruiking for a while. And probably I expect they'll keep banging on about how the alternatives are much slower and will take longer and be more expensive. But Labor Labor are probably going to come out with a uh, proposal to incorporate fibre to the distribution point in the into the mix. So if people remember, the original plan for the NBN was that fibre would be run uh, straight to everybody's homes and you'd get 100 megabits and that's what I have and it's great and I'm sorry for those of you who've, who've missed out so far. The multi-technology mix includes running fibre to the node, which is like a big cabinet in the street, and then you rely on the copper network for hundreds of metres or kilometres to get it the rest of the way. And fibre to the distribution point brings it a little bit closer to the houses. So instead of a 1,000 houses being connected to the node, it would be uh, only five or six. And, the, and it looks like, according to some modelling, that, that that's actually cheaper than fibre to the node because you don't have to build these big cabinets. And it means that people will be able to sort of upgrade and get rid of the last few hundred metres of copper or whatever much quicker. So I think that's probably going to be what, what Labor are going to come out as, as their um, point of differentiation. The Greens, I expect, they've always been pretty gung-ho for fibre to the premises the whole way, to the, to the home, so uh, that's what I'm expecting as well. But um, wait and see, and there will, there will, of course, be a timeline and a cost associated with all these plans, and how much you can rely on those is, a, is definitely an open question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a big issue, particularly for those of us who rent out there and um, have even less control over the options available to us. Yeah, the, the plan with like, fibre to the premises was always they'll turn the copper off soon after. So if you're a renter or you know, no matter who you are, inaction is not an option because the copper is just going to get switched off. And if you want to have a telephone, you know, at the very least, which is actually something that not many people want these days, but if you want a telephone or internet, I mean, you had to sign up for the for the NBN. And here in Brunswick, which is one of, this is one of the five trial areas around the country. This is where they wanted to test the sort of, um, you know, terrace houses and um, the particular architecture that we have here. And they had to extend, despite sending people letters and whatnot, they had to extend the deadline for switching off the copper. But the idea is, renter or not, you know, you, you won't have a choice. Absolutely. So uh, in slightly political news, uh, maybe a little bit less relevant to us in Australia, but I think this is really interesting. The Pirate Bay founder uh, has said that 
Uh, Zuckerberg, as in man behind Facebook, is a dictator of the world's largest nation and is challenging us to think quite differently about Facebook's reach and uh, how important that might be, especially with their foray uh, increasingly into news distribution and them being a massive way that people uh, access news. Yes, some people would say, well, it, it's not like a country. You're born in the country. You have to be a citizen. But Facebook is optional. But uh, Zunda makes the point that, well, actually, if you want to partake in society these days, so much discourse happens there, so many events are organised there and whatnot, that you, you hardly have a choice. And Zuckerberg's not accountable or Facebook aren't accountable to anyone with all of the, the, the policies they set and the rules that they enforce, making him a dictator. So this becomes really interesting when you look at their community standards and moderation on the platform and what they consider acceptable and not acceptable and that uh, or unacceptable and that often they clash with people in different countries as there's a disjointedness between those community standards. So we've seen that recently with a lot of feminist groups not feeling happy about the sort of photos that they can post in their groups. Um, also with online bullying and what's considered bullying and what's considered sexist and everywhere where there's um, movement in the human rights landscape, you, you see friction on Facebook. Uh, so you have these situations then where national leaders are saying, hey, Facebook, can you please, can you change your policies? Can you please stop? ruining our culture or interfering with our culture or can you please get into line with laws that are in our country but not in the jurisdiction where you operate mm. and that furthers the argument that actually they're like a country where there's diplomacy and and international appeals happening and it's some some accuracy to that mm. yeah and even more so when you look at the fact that china um doesn't use facebook blocks facebook universally but uh, you could say they have equal if not even deeper issues with things like weibo so. That's right. And, and so now speaking of China and the, the Golden Shield and the Great Firewall and whatnot, these are all sort of sinister things that are you know, quite rightly associated with China when it comes to internet freedom. What about Facebook? If they were a nation, you would be pretty alarmed because they know everything about you and they know where you are and what you're doing. And there was a, I, I saw an article today about uh, in, in the US, the Facebook app actually has the microphone turned on and it listens to the background noise what you're watching or listening to, they say, mm -hmm. um, and the, an academic has suggested that actually they might be listening to your conversations and then serving your ads that are that are relevant to what you're talking about, that it's just sort of picked up in passing. So the Stasi didn't have that sort of technology. So if, if Facebook was a nation, they would be sort of well up there in terms of their surveillance capability of their citizens. And but, also the ability to shut down conversations that they don't want to exist. Absolutely. I yeah. mean, the freedom of speech is very important. In the US, they have the, the constitutional right to freedom of speech, of course, but that doesn't apply to private corporations. That applies to the government. So since they're not actually a government, they're not bound by a constitution, then they can censor as much as they want, and there's no legal restrictions on that. Mm. Mm. In uh, in new other other news about uh, companies, uh, I suppose co-opting your own personal choice. Um, Microsoft has come under a bit of criticism in the last week um, due to their what, what's being seen as a or by some as a forced uh, upgrade to uh, to Windows 10. Basically, it's not really a forced upgrade, but it is um, a, a little bit black ops. What they've done is previously um, any upgrades that you need to uh, or that you um, 
want to uh, install, um, you're given the option to auto-update, so you have to tick a box and that's how it happens. They've they've changed it for this particular upgrade in that rather than ticking the box to upgrade, you have to tick the box... Oh, you have to untick the box to not upgrade. So uh, essentially people are upgrading uh, to Windows 10 through muscle memory. And um, it's it's got it's got a few online keyboard warriors being um, reasonably uh, yeah we call those, irate about that. We call those dark patterns when dark. people exploit behaviours that they know exist in their user base. Mm. That's, that's very that is tricky. It's a little bit underhanded. It is a little bit. Um, it's it's I mean it's not illegal, I guess, but it is unethical. I, I personally feel. Um, but that, it doesn't uh, doesn't make a great case for hey Microsoft have improved their usability. Mm. <laughs> and the the only way to get out of it really is to turn off updates, and so then you're sacrificing security updates in order to not have your computer with a gun to its head forcibly updating its operating system while you're asleep. So. Mm. Mm. I don't think anyone's really nailed the update world. I'm in uh, Mac world for some of my things and some forced updates on, on well, encourage updates on some of my devices like ye old iPad mm. have made it crawl to a halt. So it's However, a difficult landscape. The Apple products, look, my Mac, it says you need to upgrade. Do you want to do it in an hour or do you want to do it tonight? At least it's asking you. Like, have you ever been in the middle of working or something? And I saw a video this week of, of a gamer in the middle of some sort of tournament, and right in the middle of the action, bam, the computer starts resetting to install Windows 10. So, you know, <laughs> so the, the Mac's never sort of done that to me. Now, Apple have their own problems, of course. Yeah, no, I mean, my, my personal experience recently was I, I, I bought a new iPhone and, required, and wanted to install it on my reasonably old Mac and had to install because my version of iTunes wasn't compatible with my older version of um, OS X I had to update my iTunes which meant I had to update my full operating system just so I could install my phone there was seven hours I was never getting back I think we should do a segment on on the iTunes app at some point in this show because we need to do that it's the worst anyway I won't get started now we don't have time call us call in with your horror stories from from that that another week another week post election let's let's say post election we will aim for for that we would love to welcome to studio Eric Rao and Dan Courtness. They are a couple of guys who are part of the team behind an app called Go Here. It's available on Android and iOS. So Eric is a youth and family worker in the rest of his career for a youth work organisation in Collingwood. He's been working in many different fields within social services in Melbourne and overseas. Uh, lots of work with refugees and asylum seekers and... Uh, He's working on Go Here as well because he just doesn't have enough on his plate. We love that. Dan with him is a programmer who's got experience in enterprise application and web software development. He currently works at a digital brand agency in Collingwood, so I love to hear the Collingwood Massive representing today. (laughs) That's great. Uh, And you're also the developer behind this app. So welcome, guys. Hey, nice to meet you. Thanks. Good to be here. So let's get into this. Um... We've seen on your website that Go Here is like an urban spoon for live music if you could taste the food on Urban Spoon. So most of our listeners probably haven't seen your app because it only just launched in the last month and it's in the early stages. How would you begin to describe your app to our listeners? The, uh, well, the, the tagline is that it's a gig guide that sings to you. Um, so it's pretty much an amalgamation of um, a standard event listing, like a normal gig guide you'd find, uh, a compiled playlist from SoundCloud giving the week's events um, ahead, and also an interactive map that shows you where those events are going to be. So when you looked at the other gig guides around town, uh, 
what did you think was missing? Basically, like, the music in itself, which is interesting because that's what they um, what they're there for. Like they advertise them, but it's uh, unless you're really familiar with the bands and the band names, it's just really confusing. Like to find the music you want to listen to. All right. Now, do you guys get out to a lot of gigs yourselves? Like I started to like bas- basically starting with this kind of work started to go to more gigs myself as well um it just makes it easier and it's like it's amazing what what's out there basically in uh, in melbourne so i guess we should describe to our listeners a bit what it looks like when you jump into this app you come into it and it's almost got signposts or something you can choose genres of music uh and there's tons of them to choose from including undefined which is helpful for those bands <laughs> who haven't quite nailed it yet yep. uh you can choose an area like a geography about uh, where you might be interested in heading out to gigs you can choose a time uh, a time frame and, and the the app looks at uh, the week that you're in and uh, you can also pick a price if that's relevant to you and then you, you hit go and you've got all those different selections and it starts trawling and gives you a whole list of bands that pop up and if you click on any of these bands uh, the ones that are in here are all in SoundCloud and you can get samples of their music immediately and go yay nay what do you think so did you guys do a lot of research when you when you hopped into this field? Did you you know did you think how come something like this hasn't been done before? Or did you find anything that had been done elsewhere? Yeah, there were like similar things, but nothing like that can compare to it actually. But um, yeah, it was a bit mind blowing that nothing like this exists. Like everyone that we spoke about, like the idea initially, it was like, oh yeah, it makes perfect sense, but it doesn't exist yet. And um, that's basically how we started. I think also. Um we kind of researched by just being in Melbourne. Um, so often we'd be looking for a gig to go to. And, uh, you know, you go to the venue website, figure out what time it is, how much it is, um, potentially, you know, have to go to a different link to buy tickets. Um, and then you have to go to YouTube or SoundCloud to actually hear the music, um, potentially even go to Maps to figure out where it is. So there's all kinds of different data streams that you have to kind of hop between. And we were just looking to combine all of those. So what sort of relationships do you need to build with the artists themselves? Is this something where you can more or less automatically find the gig, find the artist on SoundCloud and fit it into the app? Or do the artists themselves need to actually be approached by you or approach you or take some step to sign up? So at the moment, that's exactly the process we're doing. Like, um, you uh, do find the gig, which is available online, and then you look it up on SoundCloud. And we use at the moment the songs that are having like the most followers and the most listens to it. But it's still like our decision at this stage. So we prefer actually like bands that um, contact us and let us know which which song they would prefer like to be uh, promoted by. So that's I think the next step we're taking now that we slowly start to get a bit of bit of traction. The bands hopefully come to us and say, look, we actually prefer like that to be our song on your app. Can they sign up automatically, or they got to sort of get in touch in more of a biz dev fashion at the moment? Yeah, it's um, it's a bit of a bit of a human workflow at the moment, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, but um, we whenever we uh, we get an email, we're quite responsive. We try to get the um the the band in question on the app that same day. Um, so, what about if I go to your app and I see a gig I want to go to? What do I do about tickets? At the moment, we provide the ticket URL, uh, so you can navigate there yourself. <laughs> we haven't got any kind of um you know special integration with uh, prices and that kind of thing you can't purchase tickets directly through the app um, but it's one of many avenues we're looking at taking in the future 
So rather than maybe having artists try and get to you directly and, and get exposed in this grey app, have you um, had any interest from venue owners or is it early days? I'd say it's early days. Like I think especially in the beginning when um, when you talk about like an idea and when we didn't have the app, it's very hard to convey like what it actually means or what it is. And it's great. That that's what part of the reason why we put it out like at this stage already, even if it's not like 100% yet, because we want feedback and we want people like to tell us what's maybe missing and um, and take like the next steps from there. So what you're describing to me sounds a lot like a very agile development cycle. Have you taken a particular methodology uh, to put this project together? Yeah, agile-ish. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's pretty ad hoc just because, you know, I'm one-man development team. Um, there's four of us co-founding it, Eric here, myself, and um, Jeff does the marketing and kevin who was kind of the overseer um kevin and i tried to kind of plan out some loose targets track work as much you know as accurately as we can but it's yeah been very kind of ad hoc so what about your ux your user experience design it's a very slick looking site it's very self-explanatory it's great you know who did that for you um, the agency I'm working at, actually, Love and Money, um, we got them to design the app for us. Um, we've kind of made a few tweaks and changes since, but what they gave us is, uh, is really strong, really unique. Um. So, so the, the app's one-person development, pretty impressive. The app's cross-platform, Android and iOS. What technology have you used to make that process easier, developing on two platforms at the same time? It's, um, it's an interesting question because uh, when it comes to figuring out how you want to build something like this, there's a, a lot of different things that you need to consider before you even get started. Um, for us, the most important thing was time to market. Uh, we needed to get it in people's hands, get the feedback and figure out first and foremost if people are actually going to use it. Um, so for, for, for this app, we've built it in hybrid uh, using uh, Ionic which is uh, basically a framework of styles built upon AngularJS and Cordova, which is what PhoneGap, what used to be called PhoneGap. Um, ultimately, what this is is a bunch of libs that let you uh, use phone features using web languages. And that's what enables us to deploy it to both iOS and Android from a single code base. That's actually supported by um, operating systems like BlackBerry and Symbian and all that kind of thing. Uh, they deploy with a web container that can interface with the phone's core f functions and um, allow you to do that with HTML and JavaScript, which is pretty cool. So what, what sort of metrics and reporting are you able to get back from the app so that you can feed that into your development cycle? Well, um, it, because it's built using web tech, we can use uh, very similar analytics technology that a normal website might use, um, such as Google Analytics. Um, we can append the same kind of things to uh, all of the template tags to monitor usage and get statistics that way. So um, it's a very, very useful platform for developers who have used web uh, tech before. If they're looking to try and build something to deploy to a, to a device like this, it, it's quite easy to, to get started with it. Did you come to this with a experience in traditional mobile development, maybe using Swift or Objective-C, or, or it was your background as a web developer and you've been able to adapt those technologies? Well, funnily enough, I had no background as a web developer. Um, mine was all pretty much Java, which would have suited a native Android deployment <laughs> yeah. best. Uh, but um, in doing that, I would have doubled, more than doubled my development time uh, and 
yeah, had to rebuild it from scratch for, for iOS in particular. We would have, um, I think, lost a lot of exposure if we went down that path. So have you taken this around any of the, the startup sort of opportunities in Melbourne and pitched it to any investors? Um, we have, yeah. I mean, w- because the app is our product, it's yeah. not like we've built a website around a different business that's already established. Yeah. Uh, it was a bit difficult to justify doing that until we had a product kind of alive and proven to be working. Sure. Yeah. And I have to ask you the question that we ask all of our app developers is that, you know, do you have any plans to monetize it? We have some things in the pipeline. Um, I think kind of ideally we would not want to be charging users or artists to to use this. The app's currently free um, and we'd like to keep it that way, especially for fans and artists. Um, We really want to kind of just make it easier for people to to find good music it's it's criminal that you can be in like um catfish or something like that listening to a band that's just absolutely killing it and there's like seven people there yeah yeah absolutely um so i wonder uh if you if you get this right are there are there plans to expand around australia or you know worldwide domination is that what's on the cards yeah worldwide domination is definitely the one thing. Now, just like the, the idea of going to, um, especially for backpackers or travellers, I think it's it's a great way of uh, exploring like a city in a different different way. So let's say you go to any city in the world, like you would travel to Asia, like KL, and uh, you have no idea where to go to and see good music. That gives you like an, a good way of exploring the city because you would go to venues you would never ever go to otherwise. So I think in that way, we start to establish it in Melbourne and Melbourne just like as a um, it's a great city to test it because it has amazing music. It is, it's a great scene for it. And um, we just want to establish ourselves here first and then see whether we can take it further. So you, uh, you compare yourself to Urban Spoon if you could taste the food. That would be <laughs> yeah, that's pretty boring. <laughs> when you can build that app, then, you're, then let's talk about monetization. I'm <laughs> pretty hungry at 3.30 in the afternoon. But uh, one of the good things about the food sites where you order food and there's a pl- proliferation of them at the moment is ratings and you go oh this place has only got six out of ten the, the curry is probably pretty dodgy <laughs> have you thought of, of incorporating something like that in your app or does the fact that you can listen to the music and decide whether you like it yourself enough we were we're looking at different ways we can create user identities and kind of attribute ratings and habits to individuals um, it's a bit of a slippery slope with music because it can be so opinionated. I think if you get food poisoning, it's kind of unilaterally bad. <laughs> but with um, with music, you might hear something that sounds like absolute noise, but someone else would be like, man, this is the best thing I've ever heard. So it's, it's a bit of a risky um, proposition to put that kind of rating system in there, but certainly something we'll look at doing once we have user identities uh, in place, I think. 7.34 on Triple R with Bite Into It. Dan, Colin and Vanessa seeing you through the hour talking all things tech. This evening we're joined by Eric and Dan from the Go Here app. It is a band gig guide. It is fresh and new and tasty. It is Melbourne only and you should be checking it out right now. Guys, uh, could you tell us a little bit about the founders of this project? It's a really small team. We've heard from Dan that he's your only developer. So tell us about the rest of the people behind it. Yeah, so basically Dan was like the one uh, helping us putting our vision into place. And um, so we started off literally just with the idea of seeing like there's something missing and uh, none of us had the background to actually do something about it. And that's when Kevin came into place 
who is the one like, just putting like, the, the, the team together. And he's really good in, in the ways of understanding all three parts. So like he, need, like, he knew that there's obviously like, the, the development you need. You need like, the engaging the community, but you also need marketing skills in which other the the roles that we all play as like within the founder team. So there's Jeff who does like our marketing and um, um, the the business side of things, and I do like the community side of things. And basically, Kevin was running the show in the beginning mm. and putting it like all together. So we sneaked then in with a proposition of basically having nothing and getting him from Perth to move to to uh, Melbourne. Where was all this work happening? I'm picturing a grungy oh, garage, just like a but these room. days... No, it's just, just like a living room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nothing, nothing spectacular. Oh, okay. <laughs> I've got a, I know a few people that have done the idea to app cycle with various amounts of success. One of the early decisions is, are we going to develop it ourselves or are we going to find somebody else who can do it for us? And there are you know companies in Melbourne and right around the world who will take a design of various complexity, flesh it out for you, and then promise you a delivered app. But that can be quite fraught because then your whole technology decisions are in the hands of another company that you don't have control. So was right. this a was this a decision point that you guys had to make early on, and why did you go with uh, developing it yourselves? I think that was never a question. Like, I don't think it came up. No, yeah. um, it was it was always kind of assumed that uh, we would we would figure it out, uh, and it, it hasn't failed us quite yet. So, we'll and, you, and there's a server side component as well, right? The the back end of the app is basically a web website. Um, that where all the data is hosted, of course. So is that something you've had to write as well, and that's a whole separate slew of skills you need? It is, yeah. Um, initially, we perhaps over-engineered uh, the back end a little bit. We've since just gone for a simple plain text file hosted in an Amazon S3 bucket. Um, we, yeah, had a fairly complicated uh, alternative to that, but we have a very generous um, kind of mystery fifth member called uh, Daniel as well, uh, who... Um, He's had a lot of experience with uh, this kind of thing and he's kind of helping us with technical architecture, which is um, it's quite a difficult and huge undertaking, especially if you don't have anything produced yet. Trying to future-proof uh, a technology um, app like, like this or any kind of software is almost impossible. That's really interesting what you said about the text file because... I think it's always good to start simple and you know and iterate, but there can be a tendency, especially when something's new and exciting, to over-engineer it. Absolutely. So, the interesting, uh, how did you sort of come to? Did you have to go through a few stages of prototypes, then just thought, you know what, we can throw all this away? Or yes, definitely. Um, especially when starting out, because I had never worked with uh, web languages, let alone Ionic before. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of just bringing in open-source plugins, trying to crack them open, see how they work. And then realizing, you know, half of it was kind of useless. So you, you trim it down quite a lot. But I think developers tend to stick to what they know or what they like. Um, and because there's so many different tools that will do the same thing, uh, it, it can be quite hard to go for the simplest solution if you're not familiar with it. Did you get any really good advice when you were trying to make decisions like that? No, um, <laughs> nothing at all. This is this has been one of the major challenges, actually, for being like the one-man dev team. Yeah. Um, usually you have, like, if you're peer programming or if you're working beneath someone else, um, you can get a better sense of direction. But when you're in the midst of trying to figure something out and also plan ahead, uh, it can get very messy very quickly. Um, yeah. And then so like also like the, the other team members that just have like all those ideas of features, do this, do this, do this. <laughs> totally unrealistic as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
I wanted to ask you now: Do you, do you want to stay a one man band, or let's say looking into the future, you're you're a big success. You've launched in Amsterdam and Paris and Buenos Aires. Uh, what's your sort of tech wish list if you if you had a team of forty developers? I think um, I think orchestrating the direction that the app will take, setting some pretty rigid um, kind of performance thresholds under which the app should perform. Uh, is a pretty good way to go about it and kind of let, I think, let developers, as long as they adhere to some coding standards, which I'm quite strict on, um, they can kind of pick whatever uh, technology they want that they think will solve the problem. Um, one of the benefits that we have working uh, as part of, like, a, as an independent kind of app dev team is that we can choose any open source uh, kind of plug-in or, or, you know, language that we want and just try it out. We don't have to put it through its... Uh, put it through the tests or anything we can just dump it in there and see how it goes so speaking of trying things out did you always think you were going to start with soundcloud or did the technology um, behind it and maybe apis and things influence your decision uh certainly the underlying technology had an influence um because we're using a uh, it's powered by javascript um google's angular javascript is what is kind of the core engine of how it runs uh, it controls the state when you navigate to different screens and gives it that native feel. Mm. Uh, so that kind of um, meant that we would be ideally using a JavaScript API as opposed to maybe a flat Java API or I don't know what Swift would use because I haven't done iOS native before. Uh, so um, SoundCloud came up because they have quite a good um, JavaScript API. It lets you get a handle to a track object and that track object comes with a lot of metadata which you can uh, filter through to the template. Yeah. Things like gen- uh, genres, um, you know, track duration, all of that kind of thing. So does that mean if you expanded to other platforms that uh, you know you're worried about mapping different different metadata from different things that there might be performance implications of that? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, one of the risks of working with hybrid uh, in the first place is the is the poor performance. Uh, it runs quite smoothly on on iOS because um, the web container seems to run much smoother on that because it's proprietary hardware, very mm. locked down. Um, but Android is quite hardware agnostic. So it does tend to struggle with hybrid apps uh, noticeably more. You can uh, increase the size of the app um, and like you can deploy the app with Crosswalk, which is a web container designed to work well with Android, uh, which we've seen some relative success with. But there's overheads of every, every one of these that you introduce. That's right. Yeah. So uh, for us, it was the platform agnosticism and the time to market were t- the two powerful draws for hybrid. So what about on the content side? You've talked about the technical integration side, mm. but on the content side, did you do any analysis of the music platforms out there and go, how many Melbourne bands are actually on these sites? <laughs> I wouldn't say that we went into that, that, that much depth. That, that's uh, quite a big number, but we did our research around how many bands are out there, like wh- how many venues, um, basically what's what's out there. And um, that just made us realise like how big of an impact it might have. Like a look, massive look, opportunity, yeah. It, it, it mm. has like a massive opportunity. You know? I think it's also just um, showing like how much untapped talent out there is. Yeah. So like you know, people would know about. Hopefully, I'd like uh, we change that. So um, I am a big fan of SoundCloud. So I'm really happy that you've started off with that. But I'm also a big fan of Bandcamp, and I like being able to throw some money bands ways through that. Um, have you investigated that as a platform? Is is that a possibility? 
Yes, uh, the last time I looked into it, they were no longer issuing uh, API keys ah, to developers. I did um, not know that. So we, we may have gone for some kind of uh, solution that perhaps leveraged both. Mm-hmm. Um, if someone was on Bandcamp but not SoundCloud, that would have been really good. Um, but SoundCloud seems to be the only kind of viable uh, solution that had a JavaScript API that we could use. Um, yeah. So if anyone's got the mad tech bandcamp hookup out there, put them in touch with Go Here. <laughs> yeah. That would be amazing. Yeah, please do. That would be great. So I guess before we let you leave, we'd love to just hear, you know, what what should our audience do if they want to want to get in touch with you and see you, and what should bands do? So at the moment, like the way to get in touch with us is um, just via email at the, in the first instance. So it's just hello at gohere.com.au. And, um, That's here as in listen here, here not here listen, yeah, in this place. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, through our website as well. Yeah. And um, the other thing, yeah, like it's for bands, I think, out there just getting in touch with us to make sure that we play the music they want us to play. And also like, <clears throat> sorry, and also, like spreading the word in terms of um, getting as many people like to listen to their music. Hmm. Well, Dan, Eric, we wish you all the luck in the world with this app. We love anything that exposes uh, local Melbourne bands to to more audience, so that's great. Check out gohere.com.au. Hey, I'd like to do a little correction for a show I was on two weeks ago where, you know, there was some random content coming and going and we were, we were taking things thick and fast, and I was a little bit loose with some language. So we were talking about WikiLeaks and um, The Intercept and something Glenn Green had posted about their new sort of fact-checking policies and how they were going to be checking data dumps before they released everything. And uh, I was pretty casual about saying that, oh, WikiLeaks hadn't been quite so rigorous about it. And a listener, Con, got in touch and was really helpful and sent me to a source that let us know that WikiLeaks did, in fact, have a policy of redacting information which might impact innocent individuals. So that is something that... uh, I'm sorry I misspoke about that. And it'd be great if people went and had a look up of Salon magazine in 2010 on WikiLeaks if they wanted to find out a little bit more about that policy at the time. But, uh, yeah, it's great. The Intercept also have a new policy and that's worth checking out. So thanks to Con for hooking us up with that. You know, we can't always get every detail right and we really appreciate you listening and letting us know. Speaking about listening and and, um, and how important this community connection is to us, it is uh, going to be a national day of community action for community radio this Friday. So your regular broadcasting on Triple R is going to be a little bit different this Friday, 3rd of June, uh, because we need to get the message out there that uh, the government has proposed not to fund... Uh, lots of significant infrastructure, digital infrastructure for radio going forward. And that if radio doesn't have a digital infrastructure in the future, as we know very well on this show, it's not going to have a future at all. Um, we've got more and more listeners moving to digital as it is, and that's fantastic as we, as well, you know. We like to think that it gives you a lot more options about when to listen and how to listen. And uh, I know that I, I like that choice. And I hope that people continue to have the sort of choice and the diversity in media selection in the future as they do now. And that means the whole family of community radio stations out there. It's pretty important stuff. And um, it's a great opportunity right now. We've this, um, this government's missed some opportunities in terms of funding infrastructure, as we know when we look at NBN issues. And we don't want community radio to be the victim of um, of poor decision making especially for something that costs infinitesimally less 
than big infrastructure projects like MBN. We're talking about, I think it's $1.3 million. 1.4, there you go, in, at play here, which um, hopefully in in, uh, in the context of a federal budget is, is peanuts, but um, incredibly significant for the voice of the community. Colin, sitting over there with some goggles on. Tell yes. us about what's in your view at the moment. Well, interesting bit of news that, just, that I came across about the uh, CEO of NVIDIA, who make uh, graphics hardware, among other things, saying that uh, the problems with immersion in virtual reality will take another 20 years to solve. I thought that was pretty interesting because there's a lot of hype right now with the Oculus Rift coming out and fa- Facebook getting in on that action, of course, and, and so on. And I've, I've tried an Oculus myself. It was pretty interesting, felt a bit weird, think I felt a little bit queasy afterwards and so I'm like I'm slightly in the skeptical camp that they've managed to solve all the issues but it's a huge avenue of investment and so on right now and I wonder if you guys have you ever put on the sort of late generation VR headset and did it make you queasy? I've tried as many as I can uh, most recently at Melbourne Knowledge Week and uh, there was an experience where I was in a, a you know, 360 degrees explorable virtual world and there was a boat and there was the ocean and I could, you know, I was taken on a journey through a few different things and I don't know if it was because it was the ocean but um, I was expecting to feel a bit queasy and I think if I was in there for too long I would have. I felt okay for a short, like with a short usage time. I get queasy from first person gaming, so I'm actually <laughs> I'm actually really not all that keen. I, I would like to give VR a go, but I, I'm pretty sure that I'm going to end up on all fours, vomiting in the corner of the um, very white room. Um, I have put on a, and not excessively used a Google cardboard. That that was pretty exciting, but um, yeah, a, a, an, an Oculus I think would probably uh, send me running for the bathroom. I'm interested to hear though uh, the, this 20 year mark before we solve the problems. A these people are presumably um, have some competitive interest in the market. Uh, B, does anything really take 20 years to solve these days in technology? Uh, I also, yeah, I don't know. I, it's like maybe that's, is that solving to perfect user experience state, you know, or is it just solving a queasiness issue? Which... I mean, I don't know. The, the issues that he mentioned are like the headsets are too cumbersome and they're connected by a wire and the resolution's not high enough. So okay, all, so all of those pretty easy to solve you'd think so although the the queasiness comes from the tiny bit of latency between you turning your head and the view updating itself and so technologically just with the speed of transistors and so on there there might be limits there that are quite difficult to solve and you know what's the threshold at which the human brain can't tell a difference i don't know but meanwhile we've been speaking to people implanting chips in people recently so maybe that technology will be so far that we can adjust the uh the frame rate that our eyes take things in and solve the problem from the other end eyes no you plug the <laughs> hardware directly into your visual cortex that's and skip it the optic nerve that's, that's right that's 20 now you're talking 20 years of technological inv- advancement i can get on board with that <laughs> All right. Okay. So Nvidia, you know, you might have had a point. It's uh, we can we can see that. That's funny. That ties into um, a health article that came out this week about how staring at the computer could be affecting your eyes. Now we've known this as long as computers have been around. We've had people getting eye strain from staring at computers, and there's been no end of advice about how far away our monitor should be, how bright it might be, that our eyes are getting dry, and that we need to blink more. Um, but there's a recent report that's 
been published in medical practice and reviews um, by some eye care specialists in Nigeria and Botswana. And they have done a bit of a literature review of other research in the field as well. And studies that they've uh, looked at indicate 70 to 90% of people who use computers extensively have one or more symptoms of computer vision syndrome. I didn't know that that existed, but there's a syndrome, guys, and, you know, probably we and lots of our beloved have it. So uh, apparently the use of a computer for even three hours a day, which I definitely have more. You definitely clock in it more. Mm, three hours, yeah, no, that's by, by three hours 9 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's likely to result in eye symptoms such as low... Uh, uh, oh, no, sorry, that's uh, eye symptoms, which may include blurred or double vision, burning, itching, dryness and redness. All of these sound very unpleasant. <laughs> the good news is that um, we can help mitigate these effects by consciously increasing our blinking rates. So yeah, you- mm-hmm. good suggestion. <laughs> it, it sounds like one of those studies that are funded by the Visine Eye Drops Company <laughs> Institute for Ocular Research. But, but, mm. but they did also have a, a really useful rule of thumb, which I hadn't heard before. Ophthalmologists suggest adhering to the 20-20-20 rule. Do either of you know what the 20-20-20 rule is? I'm going to have no idea about that. I just heard ophthalmologists suggest and it sounds like your dentist recommends. We're not allowed to name the ophthalmologist. (laughs) He can't show his face. 20 (laughs) centimetres from the screen for 20 minutes and then, no. So close there. One out of three ain't bad, Colin. 20 centimetres from the screen. Every 20 minutes, take a 20 second break and look at something 20 metres away. Uh, So if we can put another little programmable reminder in our computers. This is to maintain your 20-20 vision, I'm assuming? uh, Presumably. Wow, that would be the 2020-2020 rule. It sounds like they've just arbitrarily chosen that for that one thing. Some marketing genius has come up with, yeah, let's just put 20s in everything and then they'll they'll care. But, you know, I was at a scientific uh, conference a couple of weeks ago and I looked around this auditorium that probably had 150, 200 people in it and I could see like three, four, five people without glasses and everyone's staring at the hunched over the laptop. So I, I, there's definitely some, some science, I think, to the idea that your, your habits and bad habits can affect your eyesight, particularly as kids. But the 20-20-20 rule, I, I don't know. I don't need any more syndromes right now. Well, that rule about our parents telling us not to sit close to the TV, too close to the TV is bad for our eyes. That's also true of our monitors. So don't be too close. Try not to hunch over it. All the usual, you know, computer hygiene mm-hmm. rules. And now we leave and stare at the, the, the <laughs> iPhone screen from four centimetres on the tram. That, yeah. yeah, That's right. Uh, shall we cover a couple of events this week? Let's Web Directions Code, JavaScript and front-end engineering conference this year. We do love Web Directions. After several years here in Melbourne, it's heading up to Sydney um, as well as Melbourne. Um, early bird tickets are still available until uh, the 17th of June, so for two and a bit more weeks. Um, there are two different full-day workshops. So in Sydney and Melbourne, in Melbourne, uh, Rachel Andrew will take you deep into modern web layout with CSS grids, Flexbox and much more. After years of promise, a raft of new CSS layout technologies are now revolutionised web page layout. This workshop will get you up to speed with modern web layouts. Whereas in Sydney, Marcos Caceres, I did not pronounce that correctly, will bring you up to speed with ES6, the latest version of JavaScript. If you're a JavaScript developer, this single day will get you across the current slate of JavaScript ES6, now widely supported across modern browsers and more. We will tweet out a link to Web Directions 2016 after the show. There's got an interesting lecture coming up tomorrow at RMIT at the Design Hub. 
uh, at five at five p.m. Uh, Carlo Raddy talking about sensible cities, and that's sensible S E N S E. He's talking about how the way we approach, understand, describe, and design cities will be changed by the proliferation of new types of sensors and, and handheld and mobile electronics. So they, they, he's talking about work done at the at uh, MIT, uh, the Sensible City Laboratory. Uh, sounds pretty interesting. I, I think city design is something that's languished in Australia and that new technology could open up a few new avenues to do it a bit bit smarter. So um, get along to that one. And a final event I'd like to call attention to this week is the Startup Data Science Meetup by the Data Science Melbourne Group. It's a little way away on Monday, June 20th, uh, 6pm at Inspire 9, but I want to call it out now because these do book out. So if you want a chance of getting in there, you want to get in there soon. Uh, if you want to hear from some successful data science startups and learn from their experiences, then this event is probably for you. It's a joint venture between Data Science Melbourne and Startup Victoria and it's part of Startup Week so that's coming up. Uh, They are really trying to encourage data scientists to be entrepreneurial and look for opportunities within the field Um, and you know there are funding opportunities uh, so really do keep your ear to the ground during Startup Week and uh, we'll try and shoot out a link to those events a bit later. So, for now, we'd love to say thank you very much for listening this evening. Thanks for joining us on this, you know, frosty kind of evening. Thanks to Eric and Dan, our guests from Go Here, the uh, the music event app. Thanks, Dan and Colin, for for being with us on, uh, on the mics this week, and uh, thank you to Justin Petch, our podcaster, for doing the excellent job he always does. This has been a podcast from Three Triple R One Hundred Two Point Seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.